Ahoy, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 34 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Spotify? Did I say that word right? Spotify? Did I say Spotify or Spotify? Anyway, um, yeah, you know, I, I normally when I do the introduction, I say, you know, subscribe wherever you want. Follow me on uh, Instagram and um, Twitter and all that crap. But I, I, I've also talked in other episodes how I feel like my capacity right now for really this podcast in general is pretty diminished. Um, dude, I've been studying so much for school and, um, you know, we're like right at the end, excuse me, of the semester now. And I'm, you know, we have all our, um, homework assignments posted for all my classes and I'm just literally trying to do everything this week so that I have nothing. I have literally all of next week to just study for the finals. But, um, but, um, it means, I mean, even today I got home from spending the night at my girlfriend's place and I was like, oh, I have to record the podcast today. And I completely forgot it. And, um, you know, I, I love doing it and, uh, we're going to keep doing it, but, um, it's just, it just can't be in the, in the top three, uh, of my things to do right now. And, uh, but, but the reason you guys even give a shit about that is it just makes me think about, you know, when you have a creative project, like a podcast or even your music or your art, actually, I, actually, I'll tell you why I was thinking about this. I, I was at my girlfriend's place last night and she was making, uh, mac and cheese and Brussels sprouts. And um, as she's in the kitchen, she has me at the kitchen table with the laptop, like looking at the recipe. And the website she's using for the mac and cheese is this kind of mommy lifestyle website. You know, it's this person. Um, and the web, their website is basically like, um, um, I don't know. It's like one big brand. Op- it's like one big Pinterest website. Like, I, I don't know how to describe it, but I think you know what I'm talking about, which is like the mommy lifestyle blogger. You know, everything's bright and fresh and... And her whole thing is, is like, hi, I'm a, I'm a mom of six beautiful kids and my hot hubby and, you know, I'm a little crazy and sometimes I like to uncurl with a glass of wine and yada, yada, yada. And you're like, okay. And they're kind of like super mom, you know, and their whole brand is like, it is that they're kind of the perfect mom and part of them being the perfect mom is they're not afraid to talk about the, the harder bits of being a mom and the fact that they like to have a little wine every now and then. And, uh, and, uh, they just got a shit ton of recipes and like, I don't know. I was just thinking like, how fucking goofy is this? But the part that was, I mean, the reason this is even coming up is as I'm like looking at this website, um, I just see all the social links, you know what I'm saying? And I thought, I was just trying to imagine this person like bringing this brand together and like, oh, okay, I'm a mom. And so I have this website. So I need to get my Instagram in order. I need to get my Twitter in order. I need to get my Pinterest in order. I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to have the whole ecosystem, right? So people can just connect with me. But, you know, and maybe I'm woefully ignorant about this stuff, but at least lately, my whole thought is, you know, just tell people to do one thing. I mean, here's the only, I mean, if you do more, great. Or maybe I should just be more thoughtful about what I ask you to do. But really, the only thing you have to do is, you know, you found this podcast already. All right, if you want to subscribe, you can. You just have to keep listening. That's that's really all I want to ask you to do. You find the podcast. If you like it, keep listening. I mean, beyond that, the only thing I want you to do is share it with other people. That's it. I I literally haven't posted to the Instagram thing. Nobody's following me anyway, so who gives a shit? But 
um, I just, yeah, I think with everything that's going on, I just don't care. You know? You found the podcast. If you like it, listen to it. And if you really want to help us out or if you want to do anything cool, subscribe, obviously, but share it. Think of one person in your life who you think would like it. You know, no need to blast it out to everybody you know, but just think of one person you like and send it to them. Or one person that you think would like it and send it to them. Oh, man. My, uh, our MVP from last year, Matt, my buddy, uh, texted me. Uh, you know, he has perfect timing. I don't know. Maybe it's our cosmic connection or whatever. But he has perfect timing for texting me, like, right before I do the podcast. He was laughing about the last episode. He thought it was funny. Um, but uh, I feel I have two conflicting thoughts about it. I, I, I told Matt that I was sort of vowing to myself to never address any negative criticism of any kind whatsoever in the future. Because I wasn't, I mean, I haven't listened to the episode since we posted it, but I remember having difficulty starting because I was trying not to talk about it. And I'm, I'm thinking, um, what I ended up saying at the beginning of the last episode was that I, you know, I tried not to talk about this, but I have to talk about this thing that's on my mind, which was this review. And so, um, I had some thoughts about it and then, um, you know, I've mentioned, I mean, obviously I've mentioned touring with Matt Nathanson the other year, but, um, you know, I follow him on social media or whatever, and he posted this thing, and I want to, actually, I'm going to look him up now, because I want to, I want to get the quote right, and of course, I'm on fucking airplane mode, because I'm trying not to be distracted, so I have to turn that off real quick, but he posted this thing that just happened to be, like, cosmically related to that, um, to that, and I was like, you know what, actually, that's the right answer, like, that's, that's how I wish I would have addressed the situation, which is really not at all. Excuse me, but uh, yeah, he posted this quote on his Instagram. You can find him at Matt Nathanson. But he posted this quote from Rick Rubin, of all people. I didn't realize that's who it was from. (laughs) But anyway, the point still stands. The quote is, if you're reacting to a response to your work, you're not in the work anymore. And, you know, I I, I normally I shy away from those kinds of like broad brush, uh, I don't know sort of thoughts about creativity and all that sort of stuff. But maybe it was just how I felt but that uh, at the time, but that really kind of hit me and I was like, oh shit, you're absolutely right. You know, I think on other, on other episodes when I, because this is sort of a stream of consciousness podcast, we've talked about the times where the conversation stops and the times where I feel the worst while we're doing the podcast is when I become self-aware. And, uh, and uh, it really impedes the flow of just talking about whatever needs to come up, you know, um, when you start thinking about what you're saying, you're just not in the moment anymore. And, um, you know, that's like the living experience of doing the podcast. But I think in a bigger sense, when you stop to even really consider what people think about what you're doing, yeah, it just takes you out, you know, it it kind of like sidetracks you and gets you concerned about other things that, not that they're a non-issue and not that you're not going to have feelings about them, but they just really can't be your focus, you know? And, you know, I think I said a lot of things that I absolutely believe and I are, are still true. And I think I always, it's, you know, it's good that you have experiences like we just had to sort of revisit those feelings, but, you know, I'm committed to a process here and, um, you know, I'm not sure what this is going to look like at the end of a hundred episodes, but that's, it's going to be what it is. excuse me, and if you get sort of sidetracked with other things, you know, you're sort of taking yourself 
you know? I don't know. You're just kind of um, deterring your trajectory or something like that. Um, but yeah, no, I was actually thinking about, I mean, this has come up in my own therapy recently talking about, you know, I just had this belief. It's something we come back to over and over again, but you know, we had an episode recently called Plot Twist, which was, I think I talk about this, the plot twist of therapy. And I had recorded that episode before this came up, but just recently in therapy, we were talking about, you know, I approached therapy and my life in general as if it's very linear. You know, I think, you know, I go into therapy, you know, when or when one starts therapy, you have this um, uh, collection of problems or issues that you're trying to deal with. And you take them in and you're going to look at them with a trained professional one at a time. And because of the breadth of their experience, you know, everyone has their own story and maybe the, the specifics are different, but more or less people are the same. And, you know, if they're in certain situations, it's because of their past and, you know, they'll talk about their mom and they'll talk about their dad, their mommy issues and their daddy issues. And there's a sufficient level of insight and they'll um, incorporate those insights into their person, change their behavior, and then they'll live happy lives. You know, I mean, you almost take like a personal personal trainer approach to therapy, right? Like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, um, I'm overweight, uh, whatever it is, and say, okay, well, what are you eating? Okay, well, you need to stop doing that. <laughs> you know, you need to develop the fortitude or the willpower to change your eating behavior. You need to educate yourself about nutrition, make sure you're eating the right things, and you need to exercise X hours a day. And here's the, here are the exercises that you'll do, and I'll be your, basically, accountability, you know? And when you're not doing well enough, I'll kick you in the pants, and when you're doing well, I will congratulate you. And, and it's, the, it's those types of things. You kind of pay someone to, to coach you, more or less. Um, and interesting, I never really thought about that. Maybe that's why life coaching is actually kind of bullshit, because... That is exactly the type of approach of approach that someone who is a life coach, you know, would take to, um, you know, dealing with the the mental health of somebody, right? Like if you go to a life coach, that's pretty much the approach that they would take take with you. Um, and I'm sure that has its place. You know, like you know, if you're struggling with productivity or if you're struggling with. I don't know, kind of I'm I'm thinking of like localized areas of whatever in your life that you feel need focus, you know, I'm sure that could do a lot for you. But if you're talking about the deep psychological overhauling of, of, you know, a, a deep psychological search, you know, what I was saying is in actual practice, if you have a good therapist, I think the plot twist is that what they want for you and the way that they approach your therapy is very different. And, um, I used to think it was kind of bullshit. Like, you know, my therapist would, would tell me things like, well, I don't know the answer. You know, I don't know the answer to why you are the way you are or what the solution for you is going to be. That's something that we have to talk about and kind of work through and find together. And I thought, you know, I guess I always thought like, oh, my therapist knows the answer, but she can't give them to me. You know, like she kind of has like, you know, maybe she can't give me the specific answer, but she's done this a lot. You know, people are kind of people. I mean, like, I think Adam Carolla made this observation, but I, I don't know. It's not mine, but it's this, it's this point that like, when we look at, when you watch the nature channel or something and you, (laughs) actually I did say this in therapy and it made my therapist laugh, but I was saying like, when you look at porpoise or porpoises, 
And when you talk about the porpoise population, you don't talk about each individual porpoise and their uh, their uh, porpoise family <laughs> and their uh, porpoise uh, d- mommy issues and and porpoise daddy issues. And, uh, you know, what a traumatic experience of their purple childhood may have influenced their purple present. You know, you talk about porpoise as a population, you know, and you say porpoise do this and porpoise do that. You know, we don't care about the individuals. We just look at the population as a whole, you know, and of course, humans are animals. So that's the way, you know, maybe all the time we spend talking about, oh, I went through this and I went through that is a bunch of bullshit, you know, and so I take that into therapy and I think, yeah, my therapist is telling me like, oh, we got to talk about your story and all that sort of crap. But, you know, I think, yeah, what am I saying? I'm saying, you know, there's actually a feeling of disappointment sometimes. And it's not like overt disappointment. It's it's sort of a, a deeper subconscious disappointment when you know, I'm kind of berating myself for like not knowing what to talk about in therapy or like something interesting will come up. And then for whatever reason in my next session, I'm talking about something completely unrelated. And at the end of the session, I think, well, why did, why did that come up? Was I like, you know, in a way that I don't fully have access to trying to avoid the uncomfortable conversation that came up earlier. And I think that's something, that's something worth thinking about because I think that absolutely does happen. Um, but for the most part, if it's not obvious already, the point I'm trying to make is whatever comes up, comes up for a reason. You know, we talked about this, whatever comes up on the podcast is coming up for a reason. And you just have to give yourself permission, you know, as long as you're not an overtly emotionally avoidant person, which some people are, um, as long as you feel like you're reasonably well calibrated, um, the challenge is giving yourself permission and space to trust that the process is not linear you know, it's not like school, you know, and maybe part of that is I'm also, you know, at the same time I am engaged in a process that is very linear. Hey, if you want to understand chapter 11, you have to read chapter one. You have to absorb the information from the beginning of the semester to understand the information at the end of it, you know, and at the end of the semester, you'll have a cumulative final whereby we can gauge how well you've absorbed all the information we presented to you. And I'm not saying that something like, like that doesn't happen in therapy, right? Like you certainly talk through issues and you have insights, but it, it is, it is this circuitous thing, you know, and you, I, I don't, sometimes it can feel like being lost in the woods. Like you think of like, I'm trying to think of like Blair Witch Project or these movies where someone's like lost in the woods and they're going around and they start like marking the trees and they think they're walking all day in a straight line. And by the end of the day, they come back to the tree that they started at and they just go, no, how can this happen? No. You know, they realize there's some maleficent, is that the word? Malevolent force um, at play here. Um, but that's what it feels like sometimes because you treat it like a linear process. And so when you come back to other things that you thought, you're like, shit, man, we already talked about this. Are we really talking about this again? I should have learned this by now. It doesn't really work that way. And, uh, I think the point I'm trying to make though is you beat yourself up, you know, and hold yourself to the standard that it should be linear. And when your therapist doesn't hold you to that, because it's so ingrained in you, you kind of feel disappointed in them. Like, damn, to, to you, it feels like progress. Like you, you're, you're trying to be your own personal trainer. You're trying to be your own personal coach. And when your therapist is not really on board with that process, 
you think, damn, like, damn, this person doesn't really care about me. This person doesn't want to help me. This person, you know, if not doing that is what you're berating yourself for. Like when you're not on that train and you think, God, I'm so lazy. I need to do this. I need to get my shit together. And when you're there, you know, and when you come in with that attitude, like, all right, coach, I'm ready to work. Here we go. I'm ready to do my burpees, going to do my pushups. I'm going to run around the track. And your therapist is like, maybe we should just chill today. You're, and, and that's the voice that you're trying to run away from. You're like, fuck, man, this person's just trying to like keep me down. And again, not overtly consciously. This is not something you experience consciously. It's something that's happening on a deeper level, but it can be a challenge to rapport or it can kind of un- undermine your... Yeah, maybe it's just disorienting. That's probably a better word for it. You know, it, it can be a little disorienting. And... um you know, to ask someone or to try to trust them that that is actually the thing that you should be doing or to even consider doing it, it can feel like you're surrendering a little bit, you know? And, uh, yeah. Anyway, even now I'm talking, you know, I'm talking about, you know, you come back to things in therapy, you know, and you're talking about them as if it's the first time you thought about them. And I'm literally probably just, um, um, recapitulating. Is that the word? I'm recapitulating things that we probably have already talked about at length in at least a few episodes. So, man. But that's it, man. That's the process. I think another hard part to another hard part is just letting yourself be where you're at also. Like, you know, I'm I'm sort of like you know, I'm like a lot of people. I'm sort of bouncing around that whole Joe Rogan universe po- of podcasts with like Tom Segura and Burt Kreischer and all those people. And it's like when I listen to like your mom's house uh podcast, which lately has been like the um the background noise for all my study sessions, I'll have like the YouTube videos kind of playing in the background and they just sort of play one after another, you know. And that's like this, the soundtrack for my, uh, for my studying. And they got like a whole community of listeners who are sending them content and they're watching videos and they have this engaging content. And there's like a, there's like a whole, I don't know, like a cyber culture around the podcast. Um, you know, it just feels like Jesus Christ, I'm just talking into a microphone, <laughs> you know? It's just, it's weird to see a disconnect between what you, what you engage with yourself and what you, like what you like listening to versus what you feel compelled to create, you know? And I think the times in my life creatively, especially musically, when I've tried to create the things that I listen to, but not necessarily the things that just sort of come out of me, it's always, I don't know that's ever really worked out for me, you know? Like, I think there's, like in my experience, just something about being what you are, you know? And sometimes the things that you listen to are not necessarily the things that are your, that are your voice creatively. Um, and it's not that there aren't things to learn and to absorb, uh, from the things that you like listening to. But like, for example, like right now, you know, in the last two years, I was listening to like Beethoven and Brahms. Um, if I try to write a string quartet, you know, not that it wouldn't be a good exercise, but I think it would be a little forced, you know, it would be a little contrived. And like right now I'm listening to like nothing but jazz, right? I've been listening to Thelonious Monk like all year. 
I did the same thing I did with like Brahms and Beethoven, where I just made this huge Thelonious Monk playlist of like a chronological list of his discography, and I've just like worked, um, listened to the whole thing. Um, but if I tried to do like a jazz song, like a like a straight up jazz tune, it just it wouldn't be me, you know. And I think over time and over many years and years of trying different things, I've I've kind of just ex- accepted the fact that I'm the fucking white dude with a guitar, you know, I'm the cracker ass dude um, with a guitar and I sing sort of emo songs and that's my voice. And not that there's not room to experiment within that, but that's, you know, if I try to do anything else, it's, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't try stuff, I guess, you know, sometimes you have to have those little sojourns into trying new things and trying new outfits on. And, um, even if you abandon it, you certainly, you, you like, you learn something from the process, but yeah, I think I'm just trying to articulate this idea that, you know, you are what you are. And uh, it can be challenging to accept that sometimes because you want to be other things, you know? Like I, like I was talking about my buddy uh, Kevin, field medic, who makes music down in Los Angeles. He does like the sort of lo-fi uh, acoustic emo stuff. He loves like hardcore scream metal music, you know? And I think he's done a really intelligent, like he's really incorporated the visual component into his whole gestalt very well. But it's like, if he tried to make just like a straight up screaming record, it would just feel a little, like one criticism of Ryan Adams that I think a lot of people have leveled is one, he's too prolific. I mean, oh, I guess I should say one criticism that people have leveled against Ryan Adams, except the fact that his whole Me Too thing that happened recently, but I'm, I'm talking musically. Um, you Like a lot of his records just feel sort of like genre experiments. Do you know, like Quentin Tarantino as a filmmaker can make these, um, and actually, well, when I think of his early movies, especially, I think he, you know, he obviously drew on genre films, right? And you look at movies like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, um, Jackie Brown, um, trying to think what came after, but you know, these are like genre films, you know, and he draws deeply on these genres, but that is, that was also his creative voice, <clears throat> you know, and he found a way to take these sort of, well, I guess pulpy, honestly, this sort of literally pulp fiction, this sort of, um, I don't know. He took these sort of lighter forms very seriously, you know, whether it was black exploitation or heist, um, you know, and he, and he, he took them very seriously and he made high art out of them. Really. He made like sort of high art films out of these, out of these genre films. But that is, I think when you have like the creative mind and patience to really, really create a a fine piece of art out of it. Whereas Ryan Adams, like a lot of his art just sounds like someone who's woodworking and the, the, the music that you absorb is just like the, the wood chippings, you know, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. It's not really considered. It's like literally, and maybe it's what happens when you're like, you know, he's been very public about his substance abuse problems. Um, you know, when you're on drugs, uh, you know, you know, maybe writing down or sitting down and, and, and just, you know, vomiting out songs, you know, an album a day, maybe that's the only way you can work. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause you don't have the capacity or the patience to really write considered music. You know, like I, I just, I'm, I don't think there was a lot of editing and he has that whole like, oh, I like to record live and nothing's, there's no computers and nothing's edited. I think a lot of that has to do with, um, 
you know, if you got to, if you got to, if you're recovering from a hangover or you have to get to using again later that evening, you may not have a lot of time, <laughs> you know, like the window of opportunity for you to record is very small. So you kind of have to be the type of musician who can just kind of walk in the studio and nail it. You know, were we talking about this with jazz another time? Like, you know, maybe there's something to that, you know, the fact that jazz was improvisatory and many of the greatest jazz artists were like heroin addicts where it's like, you only got me for one hour. Like, I, you know, I, ha- I, I peak at like two in the afternoon. In the morning, I'm recovering from, you know, my drug thing. I get, I got, you know, I got to spend the morning copying my drugs. I got to use. And then I'll come in the studio and when I'm relatively well, we'll get a couple takes out of me. But then your boy's got to get his fix again, <laughs> you know? And uh, maybe there's something to that. I don't know. Um, I did have another thought about drug use, though, this week, which is, you know, I've always felt that anybody who has a chemical dependence problem is is fundamentally emotionally avoidant. You know, there's something fundamentally emotionally avoidant about using drugs and people who have, you know, developed a, a chemical dependence Base, like as a coping strategy to the whatever trauma they've experienced in their life. You know, I, there's obviously a genetic component. You know, people talk alcoholism, um, you know, all these addictions, that there's, an, a, there's a genetic component to addiction. But I think without the environmental trigger, you know, I think you can have the gene. And by the way, of course, I'm not a doctor, but I think you, it's likely you could have the gene for an addiction, but the, the gene for addiction But if you grew up in a relatively stable home where you were supported, it just doesn't get triggered. Um, But there's this idea we have with artists like Jimi Hendrix and stuff where it's like, oh, the more they do drugs, the better they are. You know, but if if really art is about, especially when art is about self-expression, you know, it's not just this this product that's generated for to be consumed. If art is emotional expression... You know, how could it not be better if you were sober, where you're actually living closer to your feelings? You know, if it's really about expressing something real, you know, because chemical abuse is, is again, fundamentally emotionally avoidant, how couldn't it be better if you were sober and you're actually seeing those things, those feelings for what they really are? You know, like I find like whether it's, um, who's the guy, uh, fear and loathing. Who's that guy? Johnny Depp paid like $5 million to blast his ashes into outer space. You know, I'm talking about, um, yeah, I can't think of his name. Um, I was going to say Hubert Selby Jr., but that's not it. Um, anyway, you fucking know the guy I'm talking about, the fear and loathing in Las Vegas guy. Um, other artists like Jack Kerouac, um, the Beats, uh, you know, uh, there's just certain artists and bands that have a certain type of drug culture around them. And the types of people who like that, um, like, uh, William Burroughs, right? Like there's just some kind of like druggy artists, do you know? And you find that their biggest fans are usually like have, um, some sort of chemical thing going on with them also. And so it's not like, you know, like, of course those people, oh man, this is the real shit right here. It's not. I'm wondering if they're just like, if really the endearment or the reason that particular audience likes that person's work is because they actually kind of exist in the same kind of emotionally avoidant ecosystem. 
and the way that that artist is able to engage with feelings is exact is is the type of way that that person can tolerate dealing with their own feelings and so it feels real you're know, like most of art we enjoy is we pick it up and we go oh i see myself in this but it's not you know it's its own kind of like who's the comedian uh he lives in um bisbee uh, as someone from Tucson, I should really know this, but, um, Doug Stanhope, you know, I see that guy's comedy and like, hope like he did this whole thing about how he hates Dr. Drew and all that shit. But when I look at him, I go, Oh, this guy has a drinking problem. Like this guy, like every, the way he, and you know, I'm not saying he's wrong. You know, I, I, my own criticisms of Dr. Drew and celebrity rehab, but if you want to find Doug Stanhope's bit on Dr. Drew and celebrity rehab, you can't help but feel like this is just his rationalization for his own drinking. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I agree with the points of information he's making, but at the same point you're watching and going, like, you can't help but watch it and go, yeah, but still, <laughs> you know, like that, that may all be well and good, but what about you? You know, let's, let, let's not, you know, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if externalizes the word, but you, you have this with people who are in recovery. Like they find all sorts of external excuses to explain why it's bullshit. You know, getting sober is bullshit, you know, and the system's fucked up and AA's a bunch of bullshit and it's a cult and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, maybe that's all true. But are, does that mean you're just going to drink for the rest of your life? I mean, even if there were, even if there was no recovery option for you, does that still mean apropos of nothing that you're just going to drink? It's okay to drink for the rest of your life. You know, even if every available option for treatment was bullshit and fraudulent and, you know, we're extortionists and, you know, we're full of shit, does it just mean you're just going to drink for the rest of your life? Does it mean that your life wouldn't be better if you were sober? I don't know, man. You got to figure that out for yourself, I guess. I swear to you, uh, you know, as I'm doing this podcast now, there's like some noise, and I don't know why I'm whispering here, but there's some noise going on outside my place. I swear, as the shelter in place increases, dude, people are losing their goddamn minds. You know, my girlfriend's apartment, all the fucking neighbors are just being so goddamn loud, it's insane. And people playing music, you know what I'm saying? My girlfriend has this person below him who started playing the fucking cello all the time. And you're like, Jesus Christ, man. Nobody wants to hear that shit. We had a guy, this guy lives across the alleyway from her who just like fucking blast music. He was playing this fucking show tune song for like two hours the other week with the window open. And I just want to yell at this guy, shut the fuck up, man. Close your window. Last night, it's like 1130. We're like getting into bed and I hear him singing and playing guitar with his window open. And I just want to be like, motherfucker, shut the fuck up. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, the worst part is not you know, I get it. You want to jam, but I'm convinced. I'm convinced that that dude wants people to hear him. And I think, dude, you're a grown ass man. What's wrong with you? We got neighbors around here who do the same thing. We had some people playing electric bass in the backyard the other day. They pulled their fucking bass amp outside and we're just in the backyard playing bass guitar. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you, man? Again, I just go back to this idea. It's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm annoyed by their noise. But what I can't understand is 
the makeup of a person who's not at all bothered by the fact that people hear them. Like, that's the worst thing for me. You know, I'm more disturbed by the fact that people, even at a distance from me, are now aware of what I'm doing. It makes me feel self-conscious. It makes me feel like I can't relax. You know, and when I see people who are perfectly fine with that, in fact, that's what they want. Like the fucking neighbors, this dude has like a street-facing bedroom window. It's this huge, like, you know, it's half the length of the house. It's into his bedroom. And he just fucking leaves the shades open and the lights on while he's just in there. And I'm like, I could not fucking function that way. It's like living in a fishbowl. It'd be like living, when you go to a seafood restaurant and they have that tank with the lobsters in it and they're just fucking chilling there and people just walk by and tap the glass. It'd be like living in that thing. I couldn't do it. Uh, you know, um, <clears throat> just south of the Bay Area, there's a town called Monterey and they have a famous aquarium called the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Uh, if you're ever in the Central Coast, you should check it out. It's uh, actually really cool. But I was, I was literally just saying to my girlfriend, like, you imagine how stoked the animals are right now with the shelter in place and nobody's coming to the aquarium. It's just their caretakers probably dropping by and feeding them, you know, and there's no, you know, there's no people tapping on the glass, like the otters. I think that's, I think those are the ones they just kind of float around with their hands on their chest and they're, they're just straight up fucking chilling. I was like, dude, they're probably loving life right now. You know, they're like, oh, Jesus Christ. Finally, everybody went away. Animals in the zoo are probably just fucking loving it, man. God, I hadn't really thought about that. Animals in the zoo are fucking loving life right now. <laughs> They're like, I, I, people aren't taking my photo all the time. <sighs> anyway. Where are we at here? We're like at the 35-minute mark or something like that. We're really only halfway. How are we going to fill the rest of the time, you know? Dude, you guys can't hear it, but literally someone's fucking playing the recorder right now. Someone's playing like hot cross buns on the recorder outside my fucking place. Jesus Christ. Yeah, dude, it's hard. I mean, like, domestic abuse is up. I Like, I feel for, you know, I'm lucky that I live alone and, you know, I can sort of retreat here and go over to my girlfriend's place if I want. And that's, you know, other than, like, the grocery store every week. And uh, that's those are the only places that I really go. Um, but, dude, I think people are losing their minds just being shacked up with their roommates. You know, you may even be living with your friend and people that you get along with, but at least you get to go to work and get away from them. Like, if you were just home all day with the same people... I bet homicide's going to be up too. Domestic abuse, homicide. I feel that even on the crisis lines, man, you know, the first few weeks was difficult, but there's a whole whole other level of unease or tension or something in the calls now. I mean, people are, I don't know, kind of getting kind of stir crazy. It's like everybody, it's like that, it's like the In the Shining where Jack Nicholson just starts to turn you know, he's not walking around with an axe, you know, or or breaking down doors just yet. He's just staring out the window. You know, he's kind of walking around bouncing a ball through the Overlook Hotel, just staring out the window every once in a while. It's that we're in that phase of the shelter in place. You know, by the time this thing is all over, we'll find people just sitting in the fucking maze in the snow at the end.
Shining is a strange movie. That's one of those movies that you watch and you know you're supposed to like it. But it's actually like most of Stanley Kubrick's movies, which is they're slow as fuck and boring. You know, and even a movie like 2001, which you can watch and like be, you know, it, it will stay with you. You see 2001 once in your life and it stays with you. The Like the aesthetic impact is so strong. But actually sitting there and watching it is boring as fuck. And you know it. You know, and it's better than a movie like, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I watched Tarkovsky's Solaris uh, from like 76 or something like that. I don't know. It's something like that. But, you know, Tarkovsky's this famous filmmaker or whatever, but he made this original film adaptation of the Stanislav Lem novel Solaris. And it is the most boring fucking movie I've ever seen in my life. It's so bad. And it's it's not like 2001, which even though it's not a very accurate depiction of the future... Um, the tech actually works pretty well. You know, it definitely looks like it was made in the, I think 2001's from the 70s, maybe 60s, probably 70s though. But the point is, even though it's a dated image of the future, it still kind of holds up pretty well. Uh, Tarkovsky's Solaris is fucking laughable. Do you know what I mean? Like you have things that are repurposed to look modern, but really it's just like, I don't know, it looks like a fucking washing machine or something like that. And they just paint it in a different color, and they're like, oh, this is a, this is a space pod. And you're like, oh, okay. But yeah, there's like boring good and boring bad. Like, I think uh, Terrence Malick is fucking nonsense. Like, people love Terrence Malick. I fucking hate those movies. Tree of Life? Oh, Jesus Christ. That movie was awful. And I think Sean Penn even, like, apologized for that movie. Like, he's, like, not a major player in the film, but he pops up, and I think he, when that movie came came out, he was like, yeah, I didn't even know what the fuck I was a part of. You know, I didn't even, I didn't even know what the fucking story was. Yeah, that movie's a fucking piece of shit. But then there's people like David Lynch who make nonsense movies, and they even say, like, um, like, I think Laura, Laura Dern... I was about to say Laura Linney. Laura Dern, who's uh, done a lot of David Lynch films. I think when they did Inland Empire, which is not his best, but it's still, like, there's still scenes that you watch and kind of freak you the fuck out. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you go, David Lynch may not know what he's doing overall, but he's still a craftsman. You know, there's still scenes where you go, oh, what the fuck? This is like... But anyway, I think I was saying, like, Laura Dern would just show up every day, and, like, there was no overall script. He would just hand them pages, and they would just shoot. And like, that was the movie. And David Lynch was like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, it's like a dream. I'm just making what I'm making, you know? And you kind of fucking respect that, you know? But, uh, like, I think David Lynch is more like, he's a filmmaker, but he's not like making movies in the traditional sense. Like, have you ever heard of Matthew Barney? He's married to Bjork. Or, I, or at least, I don't know, they were at some time. I don't know if they're still married. But he considers himself a visual artist, and film is just one of his mediums. You know, so if you watch his films, they're called The Cremaster Cycle. I, like, down, I like had a torrent download of them forever ago. I, I still have it somewhere on a hard drive, I'm sure. But when you watch The Cremaster Cycle, they're, like, not films. There's no plot. You know, they're just sort of images and scenes. And sometimes there's a narrative, but a lot of times you don't know what the fuck's going on. But you watch that and you realize, oh, this is not a movie. This is literally a piece of art and the, the medium is just film. Like some people are like oil on canvas. His is just like film. Um, David Lynch is a little closer to that. Do you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> Although he did make a movie. I should actually try to Google it. 
he did this thing, and nobody fucking knows what I'm talking about, but if you look at his, like, IMDb or something, he made this movie for Disney that was just about a guy, like, riding a tractor across the state of, like, Wyoming or some shit, and it's just a straight-up Disney movie, and if you saw it, you would never have any fucking idea that it was made by David Lynch. You would think it was just some, like, no-name first-time director. Um, let me see if I can pull up his IMDb or maybe on his Wikipedia or something. Um, do they have his filmography here? Oh, come on. I don't know, man. I'm distracted by the noise that's going on outside my place, honestly. Um, as a director, is it The Straight Story? Yes, it's called The Straight Story. It's a Disney film. Here's what Wikipedia says. The Straight Story is a 1999, 1999 biographical road drama film directed by David Lynch. The film was edited and produced by Mary Sweeney, Lynch's longtime partner and collaborator. She co-wrote the script, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I'm trying to get the broad source of the plot. Um, the film is based on the true story of Alvin Strait's 1994, 1994 journey across Iowa and Wisconsin on a lawnmower. Alvin is an elderly World War II veteran who lives with his daughter, a kind woman with an intellectual disability. When he hears that his estranged brother, Lyle, has suffered a stroke, Alvin makes up his mind to go visit him and hopefully make amends before he dies. Because Alvin's legs and eyes are too impaired for him to receive a driving license, he hitches a trailer to his recently purchased 30-year-old John Deere 110 lawn tractor, his John Deere tiller, having a maximum speed of <laughs> about 5 miles per hour and sets off on the 240 miles journey from Lawrence, Iowa to Mount, to Mount Zion, Wisconsin. Interesting that it's Mount Zion, right? There's like a spiritual component there. Um, yeah, it was released by Walt Disney. Interesting. It was a critical success. Interesting. Wow, it's like David Lynch can fucking do anything. But yeah, it's weird when you have someone like David Lynch who has the, like just a movie like that where you think, Jesus Christ. You know, like some people, some people don't even realize that he did Elephant Man. They think he's just like a racer head, Mulholland Drive or whatever. But you see a movie like Elephant Man and you go, oh shit, like David Lynch can do a straight up film if he wants to. Anyway, dude, what the fuck are we talking about? I don't know. I did watch this movie the other day called Polytechnic. Um, do you know the filmmaker Dennis Villeneuve? I think that's how you say his last name. He's like one of my favorites. He did um, Enemy, which is like one of my favorite movies the last who knows how many years. Um, he did Arrival, which I thought was great at the time. Sicario, which is a great movie. Um, he did uh, Prisoners with Jake Gyllenhaal, which is... You know, it's actually... I rewatched it recently. And I think that's why I even got to this other movie, Polytechnic. That Amazon was like, hey, you might like this. But I was talking in another episode about how I thought Paul Dano was fucking awful and there will be blood. You know, like Daniel Day-Lewis is the shit. And, you know, obviously Paul Thomas Anderson's a great filmmaker. But I think I was probably contrasting um, uh, There Will Be Blood and The Master, which is, you watch those movies, um, well, I think of a trilogy, actually. I think of There Will Be Blood, The Master, and Phantom Thread, which to me are like late Paul Thomas Anderson, kind of like high period. Like, I mean, I think, you know, you could probably argue that maybe his high point was also his early films, like Boogie Nights or whatever. But, you know, there's clearly a different there's a mature filmmaker for those late films, right? And he's obviously doing something very different visually, aesthetically, whatever, you know, he's, he's, it's a different voice, you know? And 
it's it's high art. They're great films. There will be Blood, the Master, and Phantom Thread. But the glaring problem <laughs> in the first two films, and I think Phantom Thread is probably, I don't know if it's the best, but you could probably find less fault with either of them because there's two major problems with There Will Be Blood and The Master and its casting. And for There Will Be Blood, it's Paul Dana, which makes sense because you're like, oh, what have you been in besides The Girl Next Door? You know, like, of course, Paul Dano is not great in that movie. And I think, I think the inside baseball story is that somebody else was cast in that role who wasn't working. So they just were like, uh, all right, Paul, you're doing it. <laughs> He's like, okay. But the dis, the most disappointing one is the master, which is Joaquin Phoenix is fucking incredible. But you look at that movie and I don't know if Philip Seymour Hoffman was using drugs again or what was going on before he died, but it's, to me, it's very obvious just watching it that he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing in that movie. You know, I it, to me, it looks like he walked on and thought he could just walk through this movie, walk through this character. Like, you know, he's obviously a phenomenally talented actor. He's done great work. He obviously has, uh, you know, he has a lot of skill. I don't feel like there was a lot of preparation for this movie. I feel like Philip Seymour Hoffman just showed up and thought he could pull it off. And he, then he saw that, oh shit, I'm sitting across from Joaquin Phoenix, who's fucking ready to go. And I think he gets outacted. You know, and I feel the same exact thing when I watch Paul Daniel with Daniel Day Lewis. Like they're just out acted; they just can't keep up. Like when you watch Daniel Day Lewis and There Will Be Blood, you go, "Oh, this dude's fucking dedicated." You know what I'm saying? Like he's in. Like he is. Like when you hear Daniel Day Lewis's speaking voice, you're fucking flabbergasted because every time you see him do a character, it's not him. You know what I'm saying? Like Philip Seymour Hoffman usually plays some version of himself. But when you watch Joaquin Phoenix in The Master, you're like, holy shit. It's like a different person. The way he holds his face, it's just he's completely dedicated. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I guarantee you he was probably one of the number one choices for Joker because of his role in The Master. They realized, oh shit, this guy's like fucking Daniel Day-Lewis level. You know what I'm saying? Um, but uh, yeah, and Philip Seymour Hoffman's just not in that orbit. Oh yeah, but why am I talking about this? Oh yeah. Paul Dano fucking comes back and brings the fucking heat in in prisoners the dennis villainy movie with jake gyllenhaal and hugh jackman it's i don't know if it's a phenomenal movie overall but aesthetically it's really good jake gyllenhaal's kind of the shit hugh jackman's pretty fucking good and also but paul dano does really well too and i think he does especially well because it's all he does he doesn't have a lot of lines (laughs) but he gets the vibe right you know what i'm saying he plays this kind of like creepy suspect of like uh, uh, you know suspected of being a, a child molester and it's just oh, it's a fucking it, it is a really good movie so if you haven't seen prisoners you should check it out um and i don't know it feels weird to sort of say because i guess everyone thinks the guy's the shit right like he's, he did the blade runner remake which was like whatever but he's a major film director so you know i'm not turning anyone on to some shit they don't already know but dennis, dennis villeneuve is the, is the fucking shit man um and he did this movie called Polytechnic. Uh, I think the movie was done in the early 2000s, or maybe like 2009 or some shit like that. I'd have to look it up. I think it was before Prisoners. I'm just going to look it up, dude. I, I don't know. I don't like doing this shit like on the podcast. but uh, I just want to look at it. Oh, yeah. Funny enough, though, this Del- Dennis Villeneuve, I think there's a guy named David Villeneuve who was on the Joe Rogan podcast recently, and he was talking for, like, he was living in, like, Alaska, like, in a cabin that he built for himself, like, total Walden style, like, shooting coyotes and, like, hunting for his food and living off the grid. And the entire time I'm watching the interview, I'm like, oh, dude, man, the director of fucking Sicario is fucking gangster. 
thinking it was the same dude, and it fucking wasn't. The dude was like David Villeneuve or something like that. Anyway, yeah, Polytechnic is before Prisoners. Prisoners was 2013, Polytechnic was 2009. But it's, uh, it's a fucking really crazy movie. It's about this uh, shooting at uh, Montreal Polytechnic College in like 90... Or actually, I think it, the shooting was like in 89, where this guy you know went to the college and killed like 14, pe- 14 women. Maybe one man also. But he literally was like anti-feminist. He was, you know, insane and went to the thing and fucking targeted women and shot a bunch of people. And I was kind of like, you know, I don't know if you guys remember a movie, the movie Elephant, which was like a, you know, fictional film version of the Columbine shooting, which is fucking garbage. I remember seeing it in theaters. Actually, I think the first time I saw the trailer for the Cremaster cycle was seeing Elephant in the theaters. It was at this like art house movie place in Tucson called The Loft. And I think they were going to start showing the Cream Master Cycle. So there was like a trailer for it before Elephant. But Elephant's awful. It's slow. You know, Gus Van Sant's been like celebrated for like hiring non-actors in his movies. But then you watch the movie and you're like, oh, these people can't act. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, just because you have non-actors doesn't mean it's not realistic. It means you have bad actors in your movie. You know, um... But yeah, anyway, Elephant is a film version of a school shooting, which is not good. So I was like, oh, Polytechnic, it's going to be some bullshit. Dude, it's really good. It's disturbing to watch. It's very scary. You know, it's obviously very violent, but it's not like gratuitously violent, you know? And uh, yeah, I I started watching it like at like one in the morning. You know, I get off work at midnight, kind of settle down for a little bit. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna lay down and I start watching this movie. Dude, I just watched the whole thing. Oh, very hard to watch. But the crazy part too is you think like no matter what generation you're from, you think that, you know, whatever issues you're dealing with are the issues of your time. But the guy who's like writing this letter, you know, he writes like his suicide note. He's articulating his reasons for doing the shooting. The dude could be a fucking incel. You know what I'm saying? Like you think, oh, it doesn't matter what decade decade we live in. We've always had these certain people, you know, these sort of sexless, castrated, um, crazy men you know, who hate women and who feel put upon and, uh, you know, and lash out at society. These jokers, right? Yeah, but maybe it's like therapy. I'm saying like, you know, in therapy, you spend all this time, you come back to the same topics and you're like, damn, are we still dealing with this shit? I mean, history is like the exact same way. Like, every generation thinks, like, oh, shit, we're dealing with these issues that nobody's had to deal with before. You know, I don't know. Is that true? I mean, the older I get, the more I experience, the more I think there's there's something to that. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same shit. It's the same, it's a never-ending story. It's the same drama over and over and over again. You know, and the tragedy is that you only live once. And so much of your experience is controlled and dictated by your biological development. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not like you can be born and just download histories, um, you know, the sum of human knowledge up to that point and try to carry the torch forward. You know, so much of your engagement and understanding of the world is totally based on where you're at in your life. I mean, I'll probably revisit this when I'm 60, but it's like only until I was like 30 did I feel like, oh, I'm kind of like a real person now. Like I can finally begin to engage with 
the world as it actually exists and not like how I experience it based on my age. Do you know what I'm saying? But I'm sure when I'm 60, I'll laugh at that too. I'll be like, oh yeah, I was such an idiot at 30. <laughs> I thought I had the world figured out. I knew nothing. But I think as you get older, what you think is, it becomes laughable when kids seem, you know, they say that they have the world figured out and you're like, well, let's revisit this conversation in 20 years. I think what I'm trying to say is it's crazy that anything gets done at all. You know, we're all kind of feeling our way forward in the dark. It really is the blind leading the blind over and over again. And it's like you look at former generations and you think, God, they were so stupid. (laughs) But then you look at the younger generation and you're like, wow, they don't seem very intelligent to me. But they're also blaming your generation. Like, oh, look what you guys fucking left for us. And you're like, damn, dude, we're all fucked. No wonder we deal with the same shit every generation. The technology changes. There are there there is progress made. You know the quality of life for people um, seems to be going up. Life expectancy goes up. But the fundamental psycho spiritual struggle like never changes. Like there's a famous. I never fucking know it when I mention it. I can only like allude to it, but there is something that was found like this writing from like Mount Vesuvius or some bullshit like that. But it was some older guy just writing about the younger generation. And he just talks about it. It literally could have been written today. Do you know what I mean? Oh, the younger generation, they have no respect and values are going to shit and they're going to run the world into the ground and all that sort of stuff. And you're like, yep, nothing ever changes. It's the same shit over and over again. Anyway, I don't know. What have we learned so far today, folks? You can't address the critics. Something about purple families. Your purple past versus your purple present. Addressing each individual purple purple trauma. You know, the collective trauma of the porpoise population. Um, Talked about some movies. Talked about therapy. Yep, it's a pretty standard issue. Pretty standard issue episode, huh? School, we talked about school. Yeah, dude, I think we hit all the fucking greatest hits stuff that we talk about on this podcast. Talked about my girlfriend. I think we pretty much hit it all, folks. You know, I was saying on other episodes, like once you, you know, it's weird to me when I look back, you know, whether you're in iTunes or wherever your podcasts or your, the app or whatever is stored and it shows all the time lengths, you know, most of them are over an hour. It shows that one zero zero or whatever the minute mark is. And there's a couple that are like sub one hour. They're like 50 or one's like 48 minutes or something like that, but it sort of sticks out, you know, cause it sort of breaks the uniformity of the time codes that are sort of listed there. And so what I was thinking in my head is like, oh, damn, maybe we should just fucking wrap the podcast, right? Like, who gives a shit? If I wanted to, I could put out a fucking five-minute episode. If I wanted to, I could put out a 20-minute episode. But there's that thing where you hit that time benchmark, you know? And it's like, once you break that hour, you it's like, I never want to go back. You know, I want to hit the hour and just, that's what we're shooting for. That's what we're doing from now on. I think that's part of the discipline too. 
you know, even if you feel like you have nothing to say, you just force yourself to sit here and just do it. I have found in the last little bit, I've been taking a lot of liberties, like reaching for my water. Like I bet like, uh, you know, I was telling you, I was watching like interrogation videos. It's like, they probably have so many, they probably have a whole, um, uh, repertoire of things that they know that people who are trying to buy time or lying to them do. And part of it is like, you ask them a question and they like take a second to reach for their water so they can think. My favorite thing that I, I know I do, but I see other people doing it is you ask them a question and they say, what? They fucking heard your question. They're just buying time to think. And it's not like they're thinking, oh shit, I need to buy time to think. I'll just ask what? It's just a knee jerk thing. Oh, what? Because a lot of times once you start asking the question, they start answering it immediately. Do you know what I'm saying? Anyway. (sighs) Dude, remember when I used to yawn on the podcast all the time? Dude, I gotta say this thing. Well, what I was gonna say is my buddy uh, Tyler, who's a good friend of mine from from the past, was fucking, you know, he's always been a big supporter of this podcast. So here's what I'm saying, folks. We got a couple MVPs in the running, and Tyler might be one of them. You know, uh, my brother's a good, um, a good, um, he has a decent chance of being this year's MVP also. And if you're like, dude, well, that's pretty fucking bullshit. Well, you're right. There's nepotism going on here. You know, I'm playing favorites for sure. I'm not saying it's going to be a fair fight. Um, I'm just letting you know where mine's, where my mind is at right now in terms of this year's MVP of the podcast. But my buddy Tyler used to say, damn, dude, I like your podcast when I listen to it. And as I'm talking about it, your boy's going to yawn. But he's like, as I listen to it, I just yawn, man. And I was like, dude, I don't know what to tell you, man. That's just, that's what happens. But I was just thinking about him, uh, my, uh, every Saturday now, uh, at, uh, in the evening at the set time at like seven thirty. There's this app called House Party, and it's like Zoom or FaceTime where you just get a group of people together, you know, so there's nothing too novel about it, but we use this app to, like, connect with each other, and there'll be, like, six or seven of us, and my brother's been doing it for a while. I just hopped on one week where there was a shit ton of us, and then last week it was just me and my buddy Jake and my buddy Tyler, but I was saying, you know, when we hop on this app, and I'm sorry, I'm yawning again, but when we hop on this app, you know, it was like me, my brother, my buddy Javier, who's down in Rocky Point, Mexico. He's living down there now, apparently, or he's stuck down there or whatever the fuck you want to look at it. Like we had our buddy Jake, our buddy Tyler, this dude, Sid, this, our buddy Sam. And we were just like all on this app, just like talking, shooting the shit and having fun, just laughing. And it was like, no time had passed at all, you know? And these are not people that I talk to all the time, but it just feels like it's just crazy. Like you think like you grow apart from people and you do sensibly. you know, you don't really stay in touch as much as you used to. But to me, it just felt so cool that we could all get together and it was just like nothing happened. We were shooting the shit like we were, like we, like we were doing when we were like 20, you know what I'm saying? Laughing about the same, same shit, telling stories. And it just makes you feel like, oh, this shit's important, you know? And I was laughing at them saying, you know, it's funny cause I'm like 34 now and I don't have any friends. You know, you have the people you work with, you have acquaintances, you have people that you're close with, but when you're older, like you don't have a lot of good friends and a lot of it is the bullshit of your social life disappears because it, you realize it's bullshit. All the acquaintances you have, it's just a bunch of fluff and nonsense, you know? And when you get in your adult life and you're focused on work, you're focused on your family, probably all that shit kind of floats away, you know? Um, I think you tolerate less in your life, but also you just don't have time for the bullshit, but 
it just is nice that like you there are you know i think when you're younger you want to be popular you want to have a lot of friends but when you know who you are and you know who you really connect with and you know how you really want to spend your time and you place the people in your life up against that standard nearly everyone gets cut out and the truth is you'll only have like one maybe two maybe three dude if you have three you're probably phenomenally lucky people in your life who you genuinely connect with you feel like are your genuine actual peeps like your soul peeps like you guys are on a on a much deeper page and you'll carry them with you through life my my buddy matt is one of them you know he texted me before this podcast it's like no matter where we're at in our life we check in with each other and you know, I think there are certain reasons our friendship works. Like we've said, like I've only seen him face to face in the last, you know, dude, I think like 15 years. I've only seen him face to face like two or three times, if that. But we still check in with each other all the time, you know, and we're still bonded in a way that, I don't know, it's strange. It's a blessing though. You know, it's a blessing to have these people throughout your life that you can just touch base with, you know? and go deep with. And yeah, I don't know. I think I was just trying to say, you know, it's been a small good thing in my week to sort of look forward to where I connect with all my friends on this app house party. And we just fucking shoot the shit and uh, talk about old times. And, um, yeah, what can I say folks? Friendship is important. Those are the pearls of wisdom that we, uh, that we conjure here on the podcast that you guys can take into your life, man. I'm spitting diamonds over here. Did you hear me? I said, friendship is important. Wow. Write that down. Tattoo it on your body. Hashtag. Hashtag that shit. Anyway, yeah, I think we've done enough, right? Um, yeah, let's call it. This was an interesting episode. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, as I'm finishing, I was thinking, oh, episode 34. You know, I think I know what the intro is going to be. And of course, it just fucking becomes whatever it is. But I was like, oh, this is episode 34. Your boy is 34 right now. This is the only time in the history of the podcast that the episode number will ever coincide with my age. By the time we get to episode 35, I'll still be 34. And I'll, it'll ne- they'll never sync up again. You know what I mean? My age will never coincide with the episode number ever. This is it. Wow, dude, this was a special episode. I'm so glad you guys can make it. I'm glad you were here to hear it. And, uh, man, maybe this is the one you should share with your friends. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe. Uh, iTunes or um, Apple Podcasts and Spotify are, are the, the major platforms for us right now. So uh, I'll let you choose. Wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts, you can check us out on Apple, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And uh, share the podcast. Think of someone in your life who you think would like it. And wow, my music's playing me off right now. Um, um, what was I saying? Oh yeah. Uh, share the podcast. And if you can take a minute to rate and review us, you know, find us on Apple podcast, give us five stars and type a couple sentences about why you like listening to the podcast. See if we can bury our most recent, uh, bad review. Eh? Otherwise, um, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time and ciao for now. <laughs>